All right, so in this short video, we're going to talk about purgatory. <laughs> purgatory is one of those words that lots of people hear, and it makes them think of the Catholic Church. And usually it comes with a lot of really interesting um, baggage that usually we pick up uh, oftentimes in high school history classes and things like that, usually taught by people who don't actually understand what purgatory is themselves. And so they hear a bunch of conflicting ideas or concepts about it being some third place where people are punished um, for no good reason or for good reason, maybe uh, where people can, you know, buy their way out with money or, uh, you know, there's lots of different thoughts about what purgatory is, and almost all of this is rooted uh, just in misunderstanding of a very simple doctrine that is, in fact, utterly biblical and actually makes perfect sense if you think about it. Uh, and so in this short video, I just want to give you a little bit of the biblical uh, basis and outline for why purgatory just makes sense. So in a nutshell, if I were to give it to you in about 10 seconds or less, it would be this. We know that in this life, even though we've accepted Christ, we still sin. We fail. We are attached to sin. And that's a struggle that we have to face until the end. We have to persevere. Uh, most of the New Testament is all about persevering or abiding or remaining uh, joined to, the, to the, the branches, right? Or joined to the vine. And we know that because this struggle in our life, even after we've accepted Christ, even after we've received the Holy Spirit, is a real struggle we face, we also know that once we get to heaven, we will not face that struggle anymore. We will be made perfect. And in fact, Jesus uses this language in Matthew 5, where he admonishes us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, it's obvious that in this life, we never quite fully attain perfection. But we also know, according to the book of Revelation, that nothing unclean will enter into heaven. And so in this life, uh, we are attached to sin. But the, the blessing of Christ, what he has promised for all of us, is that he will remake us and remake us in perfection. Uh, and in fact, we will eventually attain the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But oftentimes in this life, we don't have that fullness of holiness. And so what remains is, is one of two options. Either A, we go to hell because we haven't perfected the amount of holiness in this life. Or B, we're simply made holy. And that's really it. That's really all that purgatory is. Purgatory is a name that Catholics give to the concept of the state of being cleansed. There is no defined amount of physicality with it. It may be bodily. It may not. We don't know. Um, but to be quite honest, there's just not a lot we know about purgatory. In Hebrews, we read, You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastal gatherings or festival gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, again, that perfection could happen in this life. In fact, the Catholic Church teaches uh, quite clearly that some people will attain uh, that level of holiness in this life. But honestly, many of us simply won't. And that's okay. 
We are meant to strive to enter via the narrow gate, but God is a God of love, not a God of loopholes looking for any excuse to damn us. And one of the worst things, in my opinion, that has come out of the Protestant Reformation is this view of God as the great big sky daddy who's looking for some excuse to spank you, to be quite honest. That is simply not consistent at all with the God who is, as John tells us in his first epistle, love. God loves us. And in fact, uh, Peter tells us, as does Paul in his letter to Timothy, that God wills the salvation of all people. Now we know that God is perfect. We know that he is all powerful or omnipotent. So anything that God wills to come into being can happen. Now with salvation, salvation, of course, is a two-way street. So God makes it possible for all of us to know him sufficiently enough that we may attain salvation in some capacity. We don't necessarily understand how all that works, but we know according to first Peter three, that in the days of Noah, um, those who were disobedient uh, wound up in a place that we ultimately call Sheol. Um, the, the bad side of that would be uh, Hades. That's where the rich man winds up in the parable or the story of Lazarus and the rich man, whereas Lazarus shines up on the good side, which is often called Abraham's bosom. But we know that when Jesus dies, according to 1 Peter 3, he descends into the dead, and he preaches the gospel to those spirits who are in prison, which includes the spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah. And so what that tells us is God certainly has some sort of a capacity to work outside of what we expect the norm to be. And so we should never presume to know what God's judgments are. But the simple point is, again, we die not perfected. We die attached to sin. But in the next life, there will be no attachment to sin. So between the moment we step into eternity at our death and the moment of our resurrection after our judgment, where we know that we will be going to heaven after judgment, some sort of a change has to occur. And again, to this state of being, this change, the Catholic Church calls purgatory. Now, we can see this in a couple of different places in Scripture and I'll just pull up a couple of those. Uh, Jesus makes a lot of different allusions to places like this. Uh, he says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come, which seems to point towards uh, the end times. But in Luke 12, and I actually have an entire video about this on this channel, Jesus gives three different parables about the end times, and each one points towards purgatory. The final one ends this way. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go to your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out till you have paid the very last copper. Now, when you pay the very last copper, you will get out. So in this eschatological or end times pointing parable, Jesus is telling us a story that's not just about being a good civic citizen trying to settle a civic debt, but is instead pointing us towards the heavenly reality, pointing us towards the fact that sometimes in this life, our attachment to sin carries with it a burden that we have to be made free of. We have to be able to let 
go of. And some people will have a harder time letting go of it than others, even though they will wind up being saved. And in fact, Paul's going to use very clear language about this in just a minute. But Jesus actually gives us a second version of this a little bit early in the story when he's talking to Peter. And again, I have a whole whole verse on this or whole video on this, but this I'm just going to go ahead and read this because you're going to see there's four different servants here. There's a faithful servant who knows what he's supposed to do and does it. There's a very unfaithful servant who knows what he's supposed to do and does the opposite. And then there's a servant who knows what he's supposed to do, but kind of drags his feet and doesn't do it. And then fourthly, there's a servant who doesn't know what he's supposed to do and then winds up not doing it. And what we see is the first man is rewarded. He receives uh, a just reward. He basically receives heaven in this parable, uh, which is very clearly going to use language that connotes uh, salvation. The second one is almost certainly going to hell. But the third and the fourth one seem to be still attaining heaven, though requiring some level of, uh, in Jesus's parable here, punishment. So Peter says, Lord, are you telling us this parable? It was a similar parable, uh, the parable about the watchful slaves being ready or the watchful servants being ready uh, for the master to come home from the marriage feast, um, which, you know, points out the fact that we don't know when we're going to die. And so we should always be ready. This is a constant refrain in scripture. Um, this is something we see in lots of different places. But here he is stating it very, very clearly because, you know, not the hour when the master of the house will come. And so Peter says to Jesus, Lord, are you telling us this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise steward whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him doing so. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants and to eat and to drink and to get drunk, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will punish him and will put him with the unfaithful. That servant who knew his master's will, but did not make ready or act according to his will shall receive a beating. And this is actually interesting because this is a weird translation. I actually like the RSV generally, but the word uh, in, in verse 46 here, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him in an hour. Um, he will punish him. The word here is literally dichotomia, which means to cut him in half and put him with the unbelievers. That's what the words in Greek actually mean. And so clearly he's being kicked out of the kingdom. But then he gives us these two other servants. So the servant who knew his master's will, but did not make ready or act according to his will, shall receive a severe beating, but he's not being cut in half and put with the unfaithful. Uh, but he who did not know and did what deserved a beating shall receive a light beating. So our ignorance, and this is something the Catholic Church has always taught, our ignorance can actually act as a cloak that can protect us from the ultimate judgment. Because if we truly don't know, then we're not held responsible. And deep in your heart, if you think about that, that's just. We know that God is just and also merciful because he is love itself. And so this is Jesus speaking about 
somebody who didn't know better. Now, it may be the case that because he didn't know better, he is still greatly attached to a number of sins, but he may have been far less attached had he simply encountered the truth and God understands the heart of the person. And so that person uh, is rewarded accordingly. Right. And so literally we have four different people here in this verse. And I might actually pull up a different translation so you can see this. This is uh, Luke 12, 41 to 48. All right. So this is the NIV, which I don't actually usually like because it tends to be a more figurative translation rather than literal. But in this case, I think it actually hits the mark better. And I'll show you the Greek and walk you through it. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour, he is not aware. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. So if we come down here, we can actually find the Greek uh, where it says he will cut him in pieces, which is all atos dichotomeo, uh, which is basically, again, that's where we get the word dichotomy, which is a, a splitting into two. So it literally means he will cut him in two and assign him a place with the unbelievers, a pistos, those who do not have faith, those who do not believe. Um, and so literally, uh, Luke is telling us about four different people. One, who's the good servant and does what the master wants and attains heaven. The second is a wicked servant who knows what the master wants, but doesn't do it. Thirdly, we have the one, uh, the, the, the servant who knows what the master wants and just simply doesn't do it rather than doing the opposite. Like the second servant, he just doesn't do it. He drags his feet. Uh, and so he's punished severely. Um, he may still be saved. Uh, but he is punished severely in a sense for not having it. Now, what this punishment is, we don't know. Jesus isn't quite clear. Uh, and so it's quite possible to figure this as being um, the process by which we are removed from our sin. And the more attached you are to sin, it just makes sense that you're going to experience the removal of that attachment more significantly. You can think of this sort of how the way time works. Sometimes when you're really, really bored and you hate the task that you're doing, it can take an excruciatingly long amount of time for an hour to go by, even though it really just takes 60 seconds. But if it's something you love doing, if it's spending time with a loved one or watching a TV show or a, a movie or a video game that you're really involved in, you know, that exact same 60 minutes can just blow by almost like it was just 10 minutes. And you're like, wow, where did the time go? So we actually have a subjective perception of time, even in this life. And so it seems to be the case that our subjective perception of purgatory or of the state of being cleansed is simply going to be different depending upon our level of attachment to sin. And so lastly, we're going to jump over to 1 Corinthians 3 and read what St. Paul writes. And St. Paul has this to say in 1 Corinthians 3. First, he starts off and he says, one of my favorite lines, I, wa I planted Apollos water, but God gives the growth. Whenever we're doing any kind of ministry work, we have to bear that in mind. You can't expect that when you reach out to someone with the truth, they're going to instantly respond. But if you reach out to them in charity and kindness, as Peter recommends in his epistle, you will find over time that you're planting seed and you're also planting seed on soil that you're cultivating. And over time, whether you get to see it or not, that seed will sprout and that seed will grow. But here's what Paul says 
And this is from the RSV again, translation. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and another man is building on it. Let each man take care how he builds upon it. He changes just slightly. For no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, so three good things and three not so good things, each man's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. The day is the day of judgment. It will disclose those works because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, so the gold and the silver and the precious stones, he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So this is something that happens at or after the moment of judgment. And this man suffers loss. There is no loss. There is no suffering in heaven. But he is saved and there is no salvation in hell. So Paul is clearly referencing the moment in which we are cleansed of our attachments to sin in this life. He is talking about what Catholics commonly call purgatory. And here we can see it very plainly in the scriptures themselves. And chances are, if you think about it, this is something you actually believe in. You understand and you know that in this life, you do not reach perfection, or at least you likely won't. Very few people actually do, but we know that in heaven we will be made perfect. All the phrase purgatory is, is a descriptive term that helps us to talk about what this process is, how it is experienced by us. Nothing more than that. So here is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, which is basically a codified compendium of all the things the Church believes. And I've said in other videos that I think everyone should read the Catechism, even if they're not Catholic, because by and large, most of what it teaches is what all of Christianity has taught for 2,000 years, what I like to call the pre-denominational Church. But here is three short paragraphs that talk about purgatory. Paragraph 1030 or 1030, 1031 and 1032. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter into heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishments of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the church by reference to the certain texts of scripture speaks of a cleansing fire.
As for lesser faults, we must believe that before final judgment there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age nor the age to come. From this sentence we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but others in the age to come. This teaching is also based on the practice of prayer for the dead already mentioned in sacred scripture. Uh, for instance, from the book of Maccabees, which is in the Catholic Bible and was in your Bible for over 1500 years before the reformers took it out. Therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. From the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers in suffrage for them. Above all, the Eucharistic sacrifice, that is, the Mass and the reception of Jesus in the Eucharist, so that, thus purified, they may attain the beatific vision of God, that is, heaven. The Church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. Let us help and commemorate them. If Job's sons were purified by their father's sacrifice, why would we doubt our offerings for the dead bring them some consolation? Let us not hesitate to help those who have died and to offer our prayers for them. This also is attested to by the simple fact that we have evidence from the very first centuries of the martyr church where people would do one of two things, either write scriptions or, or inscriptions or scribes scribing notes on the tombs of Christians who had died, petitioning them, those Christians who had died, to pray for those here still on earth, which again is modeled in Revelation 5, 8 and 8, 3, where we see the uh, saints in heaven presenting the prayers of those on earth as incense to God and also the angels in that second paragraph in uh, Revelation 8. But alternately, we would also find uh, inscriptions on the tombs asking for prayers on, the, on behalf of the deceased, prayers for those who died who may have not been fully holy, as many of us are. And from this, from this latter testimony of the early church, we can see that even in the first centuries, it was in fact a very common belief uh, shared almost universally throughout the entire church, and it is a belief that we find confirmed in Scripture. And hopefully, it just makes sense. At the end of the day, again, we know that nothing unclean or imperfect or unholy will enter heaven. We know that in this life we die still attached to sin. We know that in the age to come, in the heavenly Jerusalem, we will sin no more, and we will no longer be attached to sin. And so we have great hope that part of what Christ won for us through his passion, death, and resurrection on the cross was that we, as adopted sons and daughters of God, will be made perfect in heaven, perfect as the Father is perfect in his own words. God bless you.